Crazy Chester Radio Hour. My name is Andreas Warner. I'm a record producer, songwriter, and owner of Crazy Chester Records. The theme song you just heard is performed by Wet Willie's Jimmy Hall and Funky Chester. The Crazy Chester Radio Hour is a weekly music talk podcast featuring an eclectic group of guests with musical hearts, minds, and souls. And many of the episodes will dive deep into the rich history of music mecca muscle shells. My guest today for this Christmas edition of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour is Michael Soup Granda. Soup is a member and co-founder of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, one of the quintessential Americana bands of the past 50 years, in addition to releasing a string of eclectic albums on his own. He's also been performing a children's show under the name Silly Grandpa and is active as Santa Claus during the Christmas time. Soup has also written an autobiography called It Shines, the Saga of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, where he talks about his life in and around music. Soup, welcome to the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Yeah, no problem, my friend. Call anytime. We yep. met not too long ago down in Muscle Shoals. Yes. Uh, I got, I've been invited down to play the Handy Fest for, I think, oh, six years now, five or six years, and uh, which, is very, very, which is very convenient for me because living in Nashville, as you know, a couple hours, boom, you're there. So uh, they, they invited me down uh, to play several shows in several several different configurations i usually play a, like a lunch set where i just play solo by myself and i sing my songs um just acoustically and then that evening i have a uh, a band in muscle shoals a rhythm section bass drum and a guitar player and john aiken on harmonica and i front the band and I can play a whole other set of my music with a thumping Muscle Shoals rock and roll band behind me. And uh, I've, just, I've just kind of been introduced to Muscle Shoals, with, like I said, within the last six or seven years. And I just love it down there. I love it down there. I like the way it's not, I like the way the guys play, the musicians play. It's not what they play, it's how they play. You know, and I just kind of, kind of like the more relaxed, relaxed vibe about it, and uh, and uh, I really, really adore it down there, and uh, I can see why you like it down there so much. Yeah, yeah. it was fun that that particular day. It's like we played our little, you know, mm -hmm. gig with the Mojo Mixers, and you said, "Hey, you know, 
let's let's do something together. And you got up and sang and played played harp on one, and we had a good time. Yeah, yeah, yeah I had a great time, and that's and that's another reason uh, that uh, the Muscle Shoals uh, musicians seem to be or, more open to. Oh yeah, come and sit in. You come in, sit in, and you play this, and I'll play this, and we'll and, and uh, there's it's very um, very uh, welcoming, and I and I like that about a music scene. Absolutely. Mm. Well, uh, this is the Christmas episode of my <laughs> podcast, and I'm glad yeah. that you're my guest this week because for sev- several reasons. One reason that I don't know if many people know that, but you're actually, and people will won't be able to see that through the internet, but you have an impressive, beautiful white beard. And you also kind of moonlight a little bit as a Santa during Christmas time. But uh, besides yeah. that, you've also done a Christmas record called Cool Cool Yule. Yep. And uh, where you feature some of your different bands on it. And you told me that it's it's a, a collection of mostly original Christmas songs and some a little, uh, may I say, on the funny side of things, too. Uh, some of them are on the, on the humorous side. Humorous side. You know, uh, I find there's a difference from between being funny and being humorous. And I certainly didn't mean to. No, 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 to, uh, no, I understand. But uh, I've always been on the funny side of the coin, you know, and I've always been, um, even when I was a little kid, when I was a little kid growing up, uh, I used to, I, one of my favorite songs was Papa Oom Mao Mao, Papa Oom Mao Mao, Papa Oom Mao Mao. And this, the sillier the song got, Alley Oop, yeah, uh, the sillier the song got, the more I liked it. So uh, let me see. I'll be sixty-seven. My birthday is Christmas Eve, here in a couple days, and I'll be sixty-seven. So when I turn sixty, um, my wife asked me, "You want a big party?" I said, "Nope." You want to take a trip? Nope. Want to go on a cruise? Nope. Well, what do you want to do for your sixtieth birthday? And I said, "I want to build a fire in my in the stove in my studio." And sit there, and I wrote Christmas songs, and I think I wrote six or seven Christmas songs, and recorded them, and that's what "Cool Cool Yule" represents. When I when I turned sixty years old, uh, as a songwriter, it just hit me, and you know, a, a litter of Christmas songs came out of me, and so that's what's on that record. Now to finish that thought. Being 67 years old, my hair and my beard had turned white. And an old fat guy with a big white beard can make a little extra cash during the Christmas season by being a professional Santa Claus. While making a lot of people happy, too. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, children of all ages. Sometimes I go to, you know, cor- corporate, you know, office parties, nothing but adults. And it just, when Santa Claus walks in the room, Everything gets brighter. Everything gets lighter. The air gets lighter. The, the, the children jump into my lap and they tell me what they want. And we, they all get candy canes. And the adults at the, at the uh, Christmas parties, it, it's, it's just a blast. Yeah, I, uh, I've had the pleasure of playing a few duo shows with Donnie Fritz earlier this month. Mm-hmm. And he has a couple, three original songs. One is called uh, Sears and Roebuck Santa Claus. And the chorus <laughs> is like, he's a Sears and Roebuck Santa Claus appearing at the local mall. Uh, 
children think he's 10 feet tall. He's a serious robot Santa Claus. So uh, that's kind of what you meant, you know, lighting up the room and kind of making yes, that difference. Yeah, and it, and, it, and, it brings, and it brings joy to a lot of people. And I really like that. I like doing that. And it's also what my funny, humorous songs do. When people hear them, they laugh. And for three minutes and 10 seconds, I want them to forget their troubles and immerse themselves into a funny little story. Yeah. Yeah. And you you perform under different names or you label different shows differently, release records under different names. Yes. Obviously, you're still a member of those Ark Mountain Daredevils where yes. you still perform. Yep. But you also do different things. You do records as Soup to Shore, mm-hmm. you do some as Soup and the Sandwiches, all mm-hmm. in different configurations. And I think mm-hmm. also this record kind of featured different configurations. In Correct. So how do you decide, oh, this is going to be a soup and the sandwiches project you're working on, or is that something that's kind of late in the process gets decided? It, it's, it, it kind of happens later in the process. Every one of my records, I wait until I have about 15 songs that I've written, and I go in and I start recording them. And when I get about halfway through... I get a feel for where the songs are taking me, and I get a feel for where the the collective album is taking me. And I'll go, oh, well, wait a minute. This is more of a Soup and the Sandwiches record, or this is more of a solo record. And then for the last half of the process, I'll tailor the back half of the recording process to, to, to uh, either veer towards complete insanity with soup and the sandwiches, or kind of semi-insanity as soup du jour, and um, and I've and I've done that for forever, and then if I hear you know being a songwriter, I've got hundreds and hundreds of songs to choose from, and if I need a really stupid song, I can go back and find it, or if I need a kind of a a kind of semi-serious song, I can find it also. But um, I've got um, one thing I've started doing here recently is writing children's songs. I'm a, I have five grandchildren, and I started writing songs for them about um, four or five years ago, and I put out an album with a character I've created called Silly Grandpa. Silly Grandpa comes out, and, and, and it's strictly for four-year-olds. And I come out, and I just turn into a goofy character, and I entertain um, and I entertain children. So there I had a whole bunch of songs like uh, Biscuits and Gravy and, and another song called uh, um, uh, Old Chicken in the Yard, and I make chicken noises to entertain the children. And that's in addition to soup sandwiches and soup du jour it's just another project and it's a little it's a little area i've started to explore and it's really been fun being a children's entertainer both in the studio and with my children's shows and i'm going wait a minute maybe turning into an old fart mountain daredevil 
isn't such a bad <laughs> idea. This is such a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> you've been very prolific and you're a very creative person in many ways, but you, you've been writing all the time. And would you mind elaborating a little bit on maybe your life as a songwriter? On, I think with every Ozark Mountain Daredevil record, you had more songs on there. It's, it seems like in the beginning you you might have written one per record but then it's more and more the most recent one it's, it has a lot of songs yes you on it how did that progress happen when the Ozark Mountain Daredevil started in 1971 we gathered as a collective of songwriters more than we did as a rock and roll band uh, in 1971 everyone was tired of playing the new Doobie Brothers song Everybody was tired of playing Beatles songs and Rolling Stones songs. We were, didn't really want to be a cover band. So we, as being songwriters, we all gathered from day one, song one, verse one. Songwriting was the main focus. So we all gathered. Now there were f five songwriters in the band. Uh, when we picked songs for the first record, uh, the four other songwriters got all the songs. On the second record, I threw one of my songs in. And the third one, the fourth one, like you said, I started throwing more into the pot. Now, I didn't really start writing songs until right around 1970, 69, 70, 71 in that area. So I didn't really have that many songs. Since then, I've been rather prolific and I've gathered songs and amassed more more songs. But on the Daredevil records, um, I got a song every every other record. And then I got a song every record. And then all of a sudden I got two on a side. And all of a sudden three. I was going, Oh man, this you know, as my songs started to get better, they got included into the uh Daredevil's uh, uh format. And uh, as a matter of fact, we've just recorded a new record that should be out first of the year if it's not out already. And I think I've got um, uh, five, five songs on it. So as a songwriter, um, I've become more prolific. And more importantly, I've, I've gotten better at it. Well, you know, you know, you know, the more you do something, the better at it you get. And when you write, when you write, and when you write, it's like a muscle, you exercise it. It, um, it works better. So, you know, I think my songs uh, here in uh, 2017 are much better than they were in 1971. And uh, to put a cap on that thought, brother, I was with some very good songwriters. The Ozark Mountain Daredevils. We weren't a really good, great band. We weren't the best guitar players and drummers and piano players and bass players we weren't all right we were a good band but we were great songwriters and I learned playing my partner's songs how great songs were written and shaped and so I had I had some really good teachers and uh to that I give them a, a lot of credit yeah well <clears throat> with the daredevils your main instrument is playing the bass. I played bass on all those records. And a lot of times when you do your songs, 
solo or with a band you play guitar too what can you maybe tell us a little bit about how the difference of playing and singing in a band playing the bass or versus playing the guitar yes um on all those records see i was a bass player when the daredevils got together we went and made that first record i played bass and um then um and then when i started writing songs even on my even on my solo records i'll play the bass on the basic track and then i'll come over and overdub some guitars and harmonicas and stuff but i'm real particular about a bass about the bass part um it's just like building a house the base of the house if you don't have a strong base you can build a real fancy house on a crummy base and it'll fall down eventually but if you have a solid base you can build a really really cool house on it uh, now when I go out and play sometimes I play bass sometimes I play guitar and when I go to Muscle Shoals uh, Terry Richardson yeah. plays bass and I'm real particular about bass players if I'm going to step out front and front the band with a guitar and a harmonica Terry's a very good bass player uh, there are a couple bass players up here in town that I feel comfortable but if I step on stage and the bass player isn't you know up to par it I, I, I don't feel right okay give me that bass it goes like this boom 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 uh, the difference is I feel uh, I have a little bit more um, freedom when I'm out front trying to entertain the crowd and trying to engage the audience and draw them into the stage presentation as much as the music um, and when I'm playing bass that's a little bit harder to do but um, when it when it comes time to make a record I play bass because that's going down in history a gig is a gig you throw it out into the air everybody has a good time at the end of the night it's over but when you're making a record man that lasts forever and I'm real particular about about the bass on my records that's what that's why I play bass on all of them yeah another project you played bass on more recently is a burrito deluxe which is kind of a successor of the flying burrito brothers yes would you mind uh, telling me how that came about and how you you got involved with that group of musicians yes um, I guess mm, well the the, the, the burritos kind of disbanded and dissolved and they all went in their other directions or they or they died um, and I think about maybe 15 years ago sneaky Pete wanted to resurrect the band and he called a gentleman a singer guitar player by the name of Carlton Moody and said let's put this put this new band together and I got this idea so they got sneaky Pete and they got Garth Hudson and they got uh, Rick Lano to play drums and the bass player was Stick Davis Rhythm, from the Rhythm Aces. Aces so they put out a couple records and they went out and they toured and they went all around and they were having a great time until one day uh, Stick I don't know if he got sick or he, he had to go do something else. He called me and said, Soup, would you like the bass chair in Burrito Deluxe? And I went, 
Well, let me see. Okay, the Daredevils weren't working too much. So I said, yes, I'd love to do that. So that's when the band took a real turn. And then, then Sneaky died. And as he was dying, he took Carlton aside and said, Carlton, don't let the band die. Keep the music going. So Carlton has kind of carried the torch. And uh, so Carlton and, and Rick Lano came back in, and they had Richard Bell playing piano. Uh, Walter Egan was playing guitar. And we've had a series of pedal steel players because the pedal steel is so important to the Flying Burrito, the Burrito Brothers sound. So we had a succession of, uh, of pedal steel players. And, um, and so I've been playing bass with them now for, oh, good word now, for maybe 10 years. And then we don't, we don't work much. When we do, it's always fun to get together and play those old burrito songs, burrito brother songs. And then along with that, we uh, complement it with new material that Carlton and I have written. Now we've recorded another record with the burrito deluxe. Seeing as how Sneaky Pete was gone, we said, how are we going to do this? So we made some phone calls, and we got Rusty Young from Poco, played pedal steel on a couple songs. We got uh, Al Perkins to play pedal steel on a couple songs. Buddy Cage from the New Riders of the Purple Sage. These are all friends of ours. So Buddy Cage played a couple songs. We got Mike Daly, who plays uh, with with, uh, Hank Jr. So we've got another record, Burrito Deluxe, with all of our pedal steel, different pedal steel players with their different approaches. And it's really, really neat. It's really, really good. Now we're trying to get that together and trying to get that out, trying to release that somehow. Uh, it needs to be mixed and mastered. But uh, uh, the Burrito Deluxe, and it's really, really fun. We work more in Europe than we do in the States. So I spend a bunch of time over there, which I really dig. Yeah. Yeah. What else are you working on at the moment? At the moment, um, at the moment, I'm trying to finish up a second Silly Grandpa record. And right now, I'm uh, finishing up a very busy Santa Claus (laughs) schedule. My professional Santa Claus this month, I've had 19 appearances between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And Saturday will be my 20th. Uh, and then after the first of the year, I think focus may f- may direct back to that Ozark Mountain Daredevil album. The album's called Off the Beaten Path. I'm going to turn 67 years old in a couple days, and I'm the baby of the group. So my, my two partners, there are three of us left, John Dillon, Steve Cash, and myself. We've been together 46 years. And they have both turned 70. Now, we've had some health issues in the band over the last couple of years, which has kind of curtailed touring. So we don't really tour. We play a dozen festivals around the Midwest. Um, last year, the band we have together now, it's a really nice band. The three of us front it, and we've surrounded ourselves with some beautiful musicians. It's a really good band. So he said, why don't we go into the studio? Let's go record these new songs we've been writing. 
kind of just chronicle this. If this is the last chapter of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, let's get it down and just go and make a record. A record. A CD. No, a record. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. So we went in and we made a new record. And um, we really had a blast in the studio. With all, with all the new technology, we used a lot of the new technology and um, made a really, really nice record. It's called Off the Beaten Path. Now, you can find it if you go to um, the Daredevil's website and uh, a couple other Facebook pages and stuff. It hasn't been re released nationally, but we're kind of looking for a label. Uh, and But it's finished, and it's mastered, and it sounds really good. And people say... Wow, that sounds like the Daredevils. Duh! You know, it's the same guys, and so oftentimes playing the same instruments. The same guitar that was on the first record is on this record 45 years later. So yeah, it, it sounds like uh, those are Mount Daredevils, and we're real, real happy with it. And I think a fan of the Daredevils is really going to enjoy it and appreciate the diversity of it, which was always one of our calling cards, diversity. Yeah, and that's you guys' whole catalog. I, I just really dig you guys' stuff. and I've always yeah. been a fan of, you know, you have the harmonies, you have the songwriting, you have this style it's not really rock and roll it's not really country it's just like a mix of all these different styles and i've always been a huge ba uh, fan of, of bands that incorporate different styles like the band or little feet or you guys yeah right and well see there you go the band <clears throat> had three lead singers you know little feet had you know two or three lead singers you know, and I always liked bands like that. Like when you hear, um, when you hear um, the Eagles, you immediately know it's the Eagles. If you hear and any any kind of solo artist, I mean, you just hear this. It's the same voice every song, and it, you know I like their voices. But with with the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, we always had five lead singers. And instead of trying to make all of our songs sound homogenous, we took each song individually and crafted it to pay respect to that song. That's why there's no banjos on Jackie Blue and there's no saxophones on our bluegrass material. Our bluegrass material is bluegrass. It's full of mandolins and harmonicas and guitars and, and mandolins and, and banjos. And then the next track may be a pop ballad with a Fender Rhodes piano and some really lush harmonies. And uh, so instead of trying to make all of our songs sound alike, we made them all try to sound different. Now, in the beginning, our record company didn't know where to put our records. They said, well, where do we put this stuff? Country bins? Do we put it in the rock and roll part of the record store? Do we put it in the pop section? We said, well, why don't you just put it some in each section? Well, they didn't really understand that. So uh, 
What well, I like though is now we got this format called Americana. Correct. And you're like 40 years pre-Americana, so it took that long to establish a format that would actually be what you guys are. In Correct. Many ways. Yeah. Yes. And there was an early record you guys did, which I believe I got my facts right was was the early demos you did, but it came out as the Cabin Sessions. The Lost Cabin Sessions. Would you mind telling me a little bit about that record? Because I really like that record. Okay. <clears throat> In the beginning, we'd been together for a couple years, and we, we caught the ear of John Hammond in New York. At Columbia? Yes. And he heard this live tape we had. It was just a rough live tape, and he dug it. He sent a representative down to the Ozarks to hear us and record us, to make a demo tape, of which Columbia Records would get the first option. If they liked it, it was going to be on Columbia. Fantastic. Come on down. So they sent down a gentleman by the name of Mike Sunday. Mike Sunday came down to the Ozarks, and we went into the little eight-track studio where we used to work. And he rented, he paid for three days of recording time. And I think he wanted to get three or four songs. But we were so well rehearsed, and we were so together and so focused, he didn't get three or four songs. He got 24 songs. The first day, we just went, bam, track, 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 after track, after track, after track, after track. We worked all day and, on, and recorded 24 tracks. The next day, we went in and sang them because we were really good singers, which is another thing about our band. We had really good singers. So we went and recorded, sing, 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 sang all the tracks. The third day, we mixed them all. And so instead of getting three or four songs, they got 24 songs. Okay, so we had 24 eight-track, nicely mixed songs. We made our first record. Glenn Johns and David Anderley came in and picked, cherry-picked 10 of them. All right. The second record came along, and I think they went and got um, four or five more of them. And by the third record, then we were writing new material and we went on. So all of a sudden, we had, we had 10 or 12 of these original tracks just kind of sitting there. The tracks that didn't make it onto the first two records were kind of uh, left behind, so to speak. And I don't know who it was who down the line said, wait a minute, let's listen to these. And these were the, you know, the songs that didn't make it onto the first two records. We're going, man, those things are neat. Those songs are really cool. And I forget, I don't even know the label, brother. Uh, but a label put them out as the Lost Cabin Sessions. Those were the songs that didn't make it onto the first couple records. And, there's, and they're, it's a really neat feeling record. That was the feel of the very first incarnation of the band. But not many people know about that record. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, you know, because that kind of, they. I think they made maybe 2,000 copies, maybe 3,000 copies. And to finish that thought, once those records were sold, they didn't make any more. So yeah. 
So that's a rare record. Well, I think the fact that you guys are, you know, the singers and the harmonies, you got it all worked out and the playing, it really, that's all it needs. You just got to go in and record it. While I guess some of those early records, you probably spent more time on it, which there's always a you know, positive side of spending more time recording, but you might lose just a little bit of that spontaneity that is contained in those cabin sessions. Right. Well, well you see, with those, with the cab, with the lost cabin sessions, see, we'd been playing those songs for two or two or three years, so those songs were as polished and honed as you know, Country Girl and, and you know, Chicken Train and Stand on the Rock and those songs that went on to the first record. So we put as just as much time and effort into those uh, outtakes as we did the masters. So when you listen to those uh, those songs that didn't make the first record, it's not because they weren't good, you know, because they're really good, you know. But we just didn't use them. But yeah, that was that was the feel of us in an eight track, two inch tape studios. Man, we had eight tracks, man. Oh man, we could we could do anything we wanted. We were stacking stuff and bouncing stuff, but then we all knew about the studio, so we did real well, worked real well in the studio, and um, it shows. So if you go back way to the beginning, what are some of your earliest memories connected to music? You mean before the Daredevils? Yeah, as you as a kid. As a kid, I had a crazy Uncle Don. I was a 10-year-old kid, and my father had a hi-fi, not a stereo. He had a high-fidelity record player, and he played his Frank Sinatra records and his Tony Bennett records, and they were fine, but I didn't really pay much attention to it. Like I said, I was listening more to How Much Is That Doggy in the Window, you know, and Spike Jones. I was really into the Spike Jones stuff. My crazy Uncle Don came over with two records that kind of changed my life. Well, a few more, but the two that really got me was Fats Domino and Little Richard. I heard these records, I just went nuts for Fats Domino and Little Richard. And it was just rock and roll. I was going, oh man, what a wonderful change of pace it was from my father's Mel Torme records. All of a sudden, I was playing Little Richard and he was going tutti fruity, you know, and I was going, oh man, I love this. Then the Beatles hit. Beatles came right, right after that, and um, and then I noticed the Beatles songs, and they recorded, you know, like some of these songs. I go, wait a minute. So that was kind of my transition into my musicianship, which I was trying to learn how to play the Beatles. I was going, wait a minute, this is the same thing as um, um, as Little Richard, same chord progressions. And so that's when I started. And then being from St. Louis, there's Chuck Berry. Chuck Berry is my all-time songwriting idol. What a, a beautiful American poet. So here I am. I'm 14 years old, and I'm, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard and the Beatles and the Stones, and I'm just going, this is great. All right. I learn how to do this real well, and I go off to college. And I meet the guys in the Daredevils. So we all get together. One of the guys had a very bluegrassy background. 
The other guy had more of a of a country background. One of the guys had more of like a pop ballad background. And then here I come in with Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones. Let's do this. So I that was my contribution to the Daredevil's gumbo was the up-tempo let's have a party aspect. And uh but yeah, those those my uncle brought over those Fats Domino records and Little Richard records and they rearranged my DNA. And that's when I started to play the guitar. And that's when I started to be a musician and I started putting together bands and I just went nuts. You know, so it was that was before the Beatles, you know, before I got infected with the rock and roll bug. And here I am, 67 years old, and I still got the rock. I, every time I put my guitar on, I feel like a giant eighth grader trying to learn how to play. Uh, I want to hold your hand. Let's play it as, as good as we can. Let's play it as energetic as we can. And um, I, I still do that to, the, to this day. Yeah. <laughs> so in the beginning of the Daredevils, you kind of get together all these different songwriters and musicians different styles different styles so was it always kind of a conscious effort to to kind of respect all the different styles or were there at times where you're trying to be something in particular or was it always kind of spirit of the band to kind of not define the sound if you will it was always the spirit of the band to not define the sound you put it very well because we were songwriters you know, and we played so many instruments, we'd get all of our instruments out. We'd have all our instruments laying around us. And somebody would send a song. Okay, here's how the song goes. Okay, what do we want on this? Do we want a dulcimer on this song? No. How about an electric piano? Yes, we did that on purpose because I didn't really want, you know, we didn't really want our pop songs to have banjos on them. And we really didn't want our bluegrass songs to have saxophones on them. So it was a conscious effort to do that. And we all respected each other's uh, ability to sing, write, and play. So when one person was presenting their song to the band, they held court. No, I don't like that. I don't like that direction you're taking that. There was never any hard feelings. Okay, well, I'll go another way. Now, when it came to my song, I could turn to my partners and say, oh, that's really good. You do that, and you do, oh, that's really good. You do that, and you do that, but you, no, get a, take a different approach. So there was always that mutual respect as artists among us that, that, was, uh, that we really, really valued. And there were, no matter what went down, there was no hard feelings. There were no toes stepped on because it was all in the sake of making the song as good as it could be. Yeah, and you mentioned earlier on that obviously the record label had somewhat of an issue of how you know they wanted to market you how or to market. could market you. Correct. Did they ever try to put you in a box on the creative side too or would they pretty much let you do your thing? Good question. That's just what I was about to get to. We went in and made the first record. First record came out, we had a hit. Boom, if you want to get to heaven. All right. We went in to make the second record. And we had Jackie Blue. Boom, a hit. All right. 
Now, Jackie Blue was so atypical of what we did, you know, but, you know, we're going, oh, well, this is such a cool song. We put it on the record because we had a lot of, you know, our, our, our music was a little bit more country tinged. And then Jackie Blue came in and they gave us complete creative artistic control and we handed in the record and they heard they heard a uh, old song walking down the road then they heard black sky then they heard uh you know uh, uh probably always will they heard and then they heard jackie blue and it was so different from all the other stuff on the album they said oh well we know how, what to do with this they marketed it boom number one fantastic then they said, oh, well, we need a follow-up single. What do you have? And we just went, uh, nothing. Because we didn't have anything else that sounded like Jackie Bloom. So they told us, well, go write something like Jackie Bloom. And we went, you know, well, we don't really approach our songwriting like that. They said, come on, give us Jackie Red." We want Jackie Green, Jackie Brown. Come on, give us, give us something. Because they were in the business of selling records. And I can't blame them for wanting Jackie Red. Well, we didn't have Jackie Red. And we went in and made another record. Now they asked us. This is where the rub kind of comes in. It was Larry Lee's voice on Jackie Blue. And so they said on this new album, we want more of his voice on this album, Carl's Lake album, which we made down here in Nashville, 1975. And so we made a concerted effort to have Larry's voice on the new record a little bit more. But that kind of took away from the, uh, the diversity, kind of narrowed the scope a little bit. And... Um, our fans didn't really go for it. They wanted the wacky old stoned out hippies playing anything and everything and going all over the map. But they they let us have artistic control and they made a few suggestions. They wanted us to move to Los Angeles, which we declined. They wanted us to become more of a pop, pop, to kind of go along to follow the Jackie Blue trail. And we didn't do that. And after uh, six albums, we parted ways. So we kind of stuck to our guns. May not have been very smart uh, financially, but uh, we stuck to our artistic guns, and we're still kind of proud of it. Yeah. So all through the 70s and even beyond, you were very busy with the Daredevils. Yes. And then... That became a little bit more of the focus after a certain time. So how was the transition of the the Daredevils being your, you know, main outlet to, you know, kind of moving on while still doing the Daredevils, but kind of trying to ex explore some some other projects. other projects? How did that happen for you? Well, it kind of came back. It kind of came around uh, organically. Another um, reason we were kind of butting heads with the record company was the fact that we didn't really want to tour that much. 
And they said, well, man, we got to hit record out there. Get out there, tour more, tour more, tour more. We've never done that. We would never go out for more than three day, three weekends at a time, three weekends with the two weeks in between. So after 17 days, I don't, you know, together, man, you're just kind of scratching each other's eyeballs out. You're at each other's throats. So we never would do that. We all had families back in the Ozarks. We had houses we needed to maintain and keep up. Um, so we've, I think the most we've ever worked maybe was maybe 80 or 90 days a year. So that leaves me 265 days off. And because I love what I do so much, I said, I don't want 265 days, 265 off days. So I put together a little side band. And we would play around. And, but when the Daredevils played, I would be right on the team. I would go out and do the shows. But instead of coming home and doing nothing, I would go out and play with soup and the sandwiches. Or I would go out and play with uh, the Garbanzos or some of my other bands. And, um, and then, um, because, you know, when you're a songwriter, when you get, you know, two songs every other year, that's not much of an outlet. And these songs started to pour out of me. That's why guys and bands put out solo albums. Oh, I'm going to do a solo album. And they go and they get 12 of their songs and they put it out on a solo album. The solo album, you know, nine times out of 10 isn't as successful as the band they're in. But it's an outlet for an artist and a songwriter. So I took my extra, uh, extra songs and put them into these other bands. So I started these other bands just for to write some of my crazier stuff that was more like Little Richard and Spike Jones and the crazy stuff. And, uh, and it's like, shoot, boy, I think I have oh four or five side projects that I funnel all of my material, crazy material into. But when it comes time for the Daredevils, I go into my catalog and I pull out half a dozen songs that I think fit the sound and the brand. But Mo, I've got all kinds of side projects. <laughs> yeah, we could just like. So we mentioned Burrito Deluxe, Soup and the yeah. Sandwich, yes. Soup to Sure, but there's also yeah. like Dog People. The Dog People. Soup and right. the Sandwich. Yeah. The Garbanzo. You mentioned those, the Sheet yeah. Rockers. The Sheet Rockers. The I, Mark and Mike show. Mark and Mike. <laughs> that's uh, my, uh, my comedy duo that I wrote with my partner, Mark Horn. We wrote a bunch of real, I mean, they're real bluegrass. I mean, banjo and mandolin. And we did it on purpose to sound like and pay homage to Homer and Jethro. Homer and Jethro was another one of my main uh, influences when I was young. I heard, you know, those Homer and Jethro records and just went, oh my gosh, this, this is the greatest thing in the world. So Mark and Mike, uh, you can find it somewhere. Ooh, that's another one that's kind of really out of print. But uh, Mark and Mike... Um, Homer and Jethro, and there, you know, I just wrote a bunch, you know, I wrote eight or nine bluegrass tunes and put them on this Mark and Mike record and put it out. Then I started to write rock and roll songs, and I put it out as the sheet rockers. You know, we had that dry wall of sound. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and, then, and then each time I get... Uh, each time I get a body of songs, or I call them litters, I write songs in litters. Right now, I think I have four or five 
in various stages of completion. And when I get, when I get, you know, eight, 10, I go into the studio and record them all. And then that's the album that comes out at that time, whether it's a soup de jour record, whether it's a um, soup and a sandwiches record, whether it's a garbanzo record, whatever it is, that's what I'm doing at that period of my life. And you started Missouri Mule Music to release some of that, or most of that music? All of it. When we, Daredevils first started, the studio, the 8-track studio I was telling you about was run by, a gentle, by two gentlemen, Wayne Carson and Cy Simon. Wayne Carson wrote the letter. And, and so deep and always on my mind. Always yeah. on my mind. And Cy Simon was his publisher. So they kept all the publishing. Can you imagine the publishing checks from the letter? Yikes. Can you say zero, 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 zero? Lots of zeros on that check. But anyway, they took that publishing money they were making from those from the letter and Soul Deep, and they built a studio. So they rented out to us. We went in and we worked in Wayne Carson's studio. And these two guys, these two men preached at us, Wayne Carson and Cy Simon, don't give up your publishing. Don't give up your publishing. Don't give up your publishing. When we got our record country, our record contract with A&M, we walked in and said, we only want one thing. We're not going to give up our publishing. You know, they thought they were hiring a hick band from Missouri and they were going to, you know, take our publishing. And we walked in and said, we're not going to do that. We're going to keep our publishing. So we kept our publishing, Lost Cabin Music, for, oh, Lord, 30, 30 years. So the Jackie Blue money was coming right to us. If you want to get to have money, it was coming right to us. So I understood the importance of setting up your own publishing company and keeping your publishing. When I moved to Nashville in 1991, I set up Missouri Mule Music to keep my publishing. For all the songs that I get recorded by uh, Chet Atkins and, and Billy Bremner and Augie Myers, you know, Walter Egan, they've all recorded my songs. I, keep, I, get the, I get the publishing check. Every quarter, I get my check. It's in my mailbox. So that's how I uh, um, started Missouri Mule Music because I understood the importance of keeping your publishing because the Daredevils had kept theirs for decades and it's afforded me a wonderful life. Yeah. That's Missouri Mule Music. And part of that wonderful life is your beautiful home. You have this great like <laughs> deck and beautiful backyard and great little studio where you can be creative how yes how important is that let's call it maybe sanctuary or that creative space for you no sanctuary is a, a good a perfect word for it um <clears throat> as an old as an old hippie from the 60s i love that i love surrounding myself with a creative environment another one of my passions outside of music and we'll, we'll do this on a whole other uh, thing is gardening i'm a, a love to garden and i love to plant things i love to plant bamboo and make sculptures and plant tomatoes and peppers and and uh, um so i bought my house and it's got these 
beautiful gardens and the deck and I just sit out there and it's it's comfortable. I have to feel comfortable when I you know, when I write. You know, I can't that's why I have a hard time with coming down to Nashville. So, oh, okay, well, I'm, we're going to write from two to four because I have to leave because I have to write with another guy from five to seven. Okay, I have a hard time doing that because if at two o'clock I don't feel like it, it's kind of hard for me to get into it. Hey, look, I, I've been writing since 1030 this morning. I have my little sanctuary. I have my studio. I have my deck. I have my gardens. I have my kitchen. I like to cook, too. I'm a good cook. And, I, and when I'm around there, sometimes songs will hit me when my hands are in the dirt. My hands are in the dirt and I'm planting tomatoes. A song will hit me and I'll go, uh-oh, 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 here it comes. So I'll wash my hands, wash the mud off my hands from my garden, run inside, grab my guitar, go into my studio, and whew, the song just kind of falls out of me. I write it down. The muse tells me when to write. I don't tell it when to write. Now, I can go and I can be funny and creative from two to four. But if when a song hits me, I have to pay respect to the muse. And I have to pay respect to that song and give it the time and attention it needs to kind of just flow through me. And uh, so that's how I... That's what I've done in my home. I've been in my home for decades. Same house, out, out by a Percy Priest Lake. And sometimes I go for days without ever leaving. When I get, when I get into a work mode and I get into, a, into a, a groove, I'll stay there for three or four days and never leave and get lots of work done. And I love it. Well, a few years ago, you got into such a creative groove, but it would not manifest itself in songs. But in a book, you you wrote and published a book called Eat Shine, the saga of the Ozark Mountain Daredevils, yep. which you wrote without a ghostwriter or anything. That's all you. Correct. How did that book, did you, what's the genesis of that book? Um, well, I think it's been out about 10 years now. So I guess about 11 years ago, um, I was, I was sitting there kind of going, I've always liked books. I mean, the, the one that, the one I liked the best was Levon Helm's book, we, The Wheels on Fire, This Wheels on Fire. I read it and just went, oh man, because the band is my all-time favorite musical entity in the universe. And I read it and I went, oh man, that's so good. And I went back and read it again. And I, you know, I'm interested in, you know, hearing about, you know, how bands come about and, and the story of an artist or a performer or a band. And I was like, man, somebody needs to write the story of the Daredevils because it's so unique and it's so American and it's so crazy. And I went, well, you know, if I don't do it, I knew none of my partners would. I said, if I don't do it, it won't get done. So I walked in to my office. I sat down at my computer. I said, okay, how do you do this? Well, I guess the first thing you do, you start pressing these buttons, these letters, and I started typing. I went, okay, okay, and I started typing. I went, clickety-clack, 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 
And it's the same process as writing a song. You write as long as the muse is flowing through you. And so instead of a guitar in my lap, I had a computer keyboard in, my, in front of me. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. And I sat there and I wrote for hours. It was, it was just flying through my fingers. I went, oh, man, this is great. Wow, fantastic. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack. Oh, I'm tired. So I went to bed. Woke up the next morning and read what I wrote. And went, wow, that's, that's pretty good. Okay. Chapter 2. Clickety-clack, clickety-clack, clickety-clack. And then we... And all of a sudden, I was going, wait a minute. All of a sudden, I've got two chapters. I'm going, wait. You know, okay, fantastic. And I just kept at it. I kept at it, and I kept at it. And sometimes I would sit in the chair. I would sit there for, it was nothing to sit there for 12 straight hours. Start at 4 in the afternoon and write till 4 in the morning. And then uh, all of a sudden I says, and then I, I says, I wrote about the first album. Blah, 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 blah. Then I wrote about the second album. Blah, 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 blah. Then I wrote about the third album. Then I wrote about the touring. And then I wrote about losing our record contract. Then I wrote about, you know, some of the bad stuff that happened. The, you know, the, the uh, alcohol and, and, the, and the cocaine. And then I wrote about the resurgence and how this, and all of a sudden I'd written about, 400 pages and I went well okay because if I don't do it nobody's going to do it and I really kind of wanted it on the history shelf as much as the music shelf because it's it's part of uh, it's part of American history and uh, it was the hardest thing I've ever done yeah. but um, I figured uh, like I said if I don't do it it won't get done and I had, that, and I have, I have a discipline about for myself that when a song is coming up, I'll give it enough time. When it comes time to make a record, I'll, I can sit in the studio, I can sit in there for sixteen hours, overdubbing and, and singing and mixing and tweaking and, and arranging. When it comes to that, I have complete discipline. Now, when it comes to some of the other areas of my life, I don't have any discipline. But when it comes to creating, I have great discipline. And when I wrote that book, I found out that it's the same process. Whether you're writing a novel or a newspaper article or a three-minute pop song, it's the same process. It's just with this book, it took me five years instead of, you know, an afternoon. Is that what it took you from, like, the first page till till it being published yes the first six months um, was research I gathered all of my partners I went and talked to each one individually and I said tell me what you remember about this gig and I would ask all and then tell me what you remember about this record and about this and this and this and I went to each one individually sometimes and then I t out of all their stories and then uh, along with my uh, vision of it or my remembrance of it, and then I could kind of call together the story. I would go to one guy and I said, you want to tell me what you remember about this gig? Oh, man, it was raining like cats and dogs. 
I went to the next guy and said, tell me what you think about this gig. Oh, memory was a beautiful day. I went, hi, yi, yi. So when I went to five different, got five different opinions, if four of them said it was a beautiful day, and one guy says it was raining cats and dogs, it was, it was probably a beautiful day. So it took me six months of researching, and then I got this real long roll of paper, and I put it around my office, and on it, I, it was a timeline, 1971, 1977, in 1977. So I would go back and I'd find my place and I would massage that story into what I had already written. And then all of a sudden, you know, when I got to 500 pages, I had to quit because that's all the long, that's all the, the amount of pages that the actual book binder could handle. But it took me six months of um, research, about four years, four and a half years of writing now, when I got to about a year out from finishing the manuscript, I said, man, I'm getting close. What am I going to do with this? So I sent it out to a ha I go went to the library. I got Levon's book, and I looked at the publisher, and I got Eric Clapton's book, and I got Keith's book, and I got you know R Ringo's book or whoever wrote a book, and I would write to these publishers. And I think I wrote to 13 publishers, and I got one rejection. No, 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 I got one. We like it, but we can't put it out for about six or seven more years because we have so many books in the queue. Okay, well, six or seven years. I might be dead. Our fans might be dead. You know, we're a bunch of old guys. And I got 12, just complete, no response. Crickets. And all of a sudden, I'm going, well, wait a minute. Nobody wants to publish this. I went, what am I going to do? Thankfully, there's this, there's this thing called uh, self-publishing and print on demand. So I went to a banker friend of mine. I said, Jimmy, I'm going to self-publish this book, and I need some cash. He says, how much do you need? And I said, uh, I think I need $33,000. He said, no problem. He said, Nancy, secretary, go cut a check for $33,000. And I walked out with a check. And I went right to Author House, which is a self-publishing um, company. And I said, now, I want, let me see, I think I got uh, 2,500 copies. And then I, then I just started selling them. And, and I just, I would sell two here. I would sell 10 here. Somebody wanted a box of 20. I'd go here. And then I just started selling them self-published. I did, just did it all myself because I couldn't find anybody to help me with it. And being a stubborn Missouri mule, I'm going to do this, damn it. And I did it. Going back to the 
perks of owning your own publishing. Going you back, correct. your whole thing. Correct. Now I've gotten into a couple uh, other little uh, um, uh, companies that on, on print on demand, you can go to a couple websites and order the book and they'll sell it. And then they send me, I think, $8 a book. Or not even, not even that much. But when I was selling them, it cost, you know, $15, $12 to print up. And then when I sold them, you know, I kept all the money. You know, once again, like you said, the uh, uh, advantages of being uh, your own publishing company. And that came out on Missouri Mule Music. And I keep the publisher half of the check and the writers half of the check. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you must be very proud of that book because you put so much of your life and energy and time in it and it comes out. Is there anything like if we circle back to the music and your record all through your career that you, you know, that that means more to you than some of the others or that's like, oh, this is my my best work maybe or is it the latest one? No. Well, yeah, there's the latest. You're, you're always most energetic and enthusiastic about your latest album but but i think um for the for the daredevils it was a record called it'll shine when it shines which is where i derived the title of my book with the same woman on the cover it shined yes it did shine it shined very brightly we were into a creative space of about two about two weeks everybody was in sync Everybody was throwing out songs. We were recording songs. That's where Jackie Blue came from. That that session. It was so creative. We were just. It was. It was literally milk and honey. It was just wonderful. That's the, the album I'm most proud of uh, with the Daredevils because it was such a prolific time. Man, we were just a bunch of twenty-five-year-old kids. We're, you know, 25-year-old kids with guitars and beer. <laughs> you know, we didn't know what we were doing in the early 70s. We were just making stuff up. Let's try this. Yay! Let's try this. Yay! And there were no rules. We weren't bound by any kind of company. We had complete artistic control. We had complete creative control. And we were just making stuff up as we were going along and throwing it against the wall, fortunately, it stuck. So we, I was real proud of those first, those first couple records. And then all of a sudden, we were flying around the world, and all of a sudden, we were there were other things that were kind of pulling us in different directions. And then it kind of people started falling off the, by the wayside. We started losing members and bringing in members, and then it started to go. Like it started to wobble a little bit, but the, but those first two records are just crystal clear and complete, complete artistic uh, vision. Yeah, man. Yeah. So, <laughs> what are you looking forward to? What do you have coming up that that you would like to talk about? Right now. Uh, remember how I told you how hard it was to write that book? Yeah. Well, I've written two more. <laughs> It must have been not that bad. <laughs> well, well, uh, no, it, I guess it wasn't that bad. In the '90s, I, I was a baseball writer for my St. Louis Cardinals. I'm a St. Louis Card. I'm a baseball nut, and I wrote a monthly column 
for this magazines up there. And uh, back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. Well, I've collected them into a collection. So I think I have 60, 64 essays and articles about baseball. And it's completed. Now I don't have the money to go and self-produce it or self-publish it. And then the new project I'm finishing up this year, hold on, knock on wood, is I've been writing a Santa Claus book. What it's like to be to actually be a professional Santa Claus and the funny things that happen to me with the children. And I'm finishing that book up too. And so um, here after the holiday season, I'll have two books completed. So I'm looking for a, a publisher. So if there's any publishers out there in your audience, contact me and I'll lay them on you. But uh, along with that, and then along with music, you know, just, just music, the tap was turned on in the 50 years ago, and I can't seem to turn it off. You know, I can't seem to turn it off. Well, that's a beautiful thing. That's a beautiful thing, nor do I want to. So it's just, it's just kind of flowing. It's such a wonderful, wonderful pace. So I've got a bunch of new songs that I want to record, a couple new records that I want to make, couple new books that I want to get out and then um and then just kind of just kind of go along and then see what what comes onto my plate you know let's see what comes onto my plate tomorrow yeah because it'll be interesting well thank you so much for being my guest today you're quite welcome brother I certainly enjoyed listening <laughs> to you tell all your stories you're, you're such an interesting creative guy I could keep talking and talking, and I've, talking. I've I've had a wonderful uh, music and art and writing has afforded me a wonderfully comfortable bohemian life. I realize I'm one of the lucky ones, and I'm very thankful. Thank you. Thank you, and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> This was the 14th episode of the Crazy Chester Radio Hour. We taped it at Buzz Kaysen's Creative Workshop Recording Studio in Nashville. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed it. Until next week, have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. (laughs) 